0: Hi, and welcome to Failureology, a podcast about engineering failures. I'm your host, Nicole.
1: And I'm Brian, and we're both from Calgary, Alberta, Canada.
0: Thank you again to our Patreon subscribers. We really, really appreciate your support.
1: For less than the cost of five kilograms of bananas, you can hear us talk about more interesting engineering failures.
0: How many bananas is that, Brian? Five kilograms sounds like a lot.
1: It's got to be at least one. I I was trying (laughs) to... actually looked up prices for bunches of bananas today because I was trying to figure out how many how many bananas you need to buy, you know, to, to trade out for our Patreon. And I, I settled on five kilograms. So right now we got some inflation going on. So by the time this episode comes out or people listen to it in the future, I wanted to make sure that our Patreon was still cheaper than five kilograms of bananas.
0: So for those of you who aren't experienced in bananas to dollar conversion, our Patreon is $5 Canadian a month.
1: Which is less than the cost of five kilograms of bananas. It sure
0: is. It's a lot of bananas.
1: Not wrong. It probably is a lot of bananas.
0: Also, fun story. We just recorded this whole episode, and then we had a technical issue, and now we're recording it again.
1: The technical issue <laughs> was solely my fault. And then when we were getting to record it again, I knocked my entire jug of water onto my lap.
0: Yeah, Brian's a hot, real hot mess right now. So, so wish us luck. I'm,
1: I'm, I'm gonna Nicole. I'm gonna go with just a mess. I was like, most days <laughs> solid four. It's not. Let's not get ahead of ourselves here.
0: Four out of what?
1: Clearly, clearly, I have the coordination of a gazelle. No, not a gazelle. What are the clumsy ones? Giraffes. Giraffes are clumsy. Gazelles are fueler not clumsy.
0: <laughs> so to be fair to Brian, when we, when well, when I first started the podcast, like on my own. I would record episodes sometimes three or four times before I'd be happy with them. Um and it was a really stressful experience at first. I've definitely come a long way since then. And when Brian joined the show, the first few episodes we recorded at least twice for the for I would say the first four or five of them for sure. And then we've co- we've gotten a lot more comfortable. We figured out kind of, you know, our system and and so for the last little while, you know, we've only recorded them once, which has been nice and time efficient but but this one we're going to visit again which i'm really okay with
1: all because all because somebody forgot to click the record button yeah the first the first run through was great so we're we're hoping for good things on the second also
0: the episodes about kowloon walled city which is a really really cool story so i i don't hate talking about it a second time i really like this story so i'm really excited we're gonna
1: get to kowloon walled city But first, we're going to talk about some engineering news.
0: Right, right. So this week in engineering news, we've got new wearable armbands that improve the dexterity of artificial hands. They help users with prosthetic hands to control grip forces applied to two different objects simultaneously. So currently, right now, users can only control one grasp function at a time, even though the artificial hands are capable of providing different control to all five fingers. This research comes from Florida Atlantic University's College of Engineering and Computer Science and College of Science. They designed a new wearable soft robotic armband which conveys artificial sensations to the artificial hand user using electromyogram control or EMG. The results from tests so far showed multiple channels of feedback that allowed the wearer to grasp and transport two objects at the same time without breaking or dropping them, even with their eyes closed, which is Pretty cool.
1: That that is really cool. So I'm envisioning that if if you were a former trumpet player that lost the use of their hands, it's like this would allow you to play the trumpet again.
0: Yeah, well, I mean you would have lost your hand, because this is for artificial um for artificial hands. But of all the choices, <laughs> Trump, it's certainly an interesting one. I wasn't expecting. Nicole,
1: that. this 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 is a family-friendly show.
0: I'm not talking about that either. Pianos banana peeling potentially, handshaking, there's lots of other things. Trumpets.
1: Or trumpet playing or trumpet playing. Yes, it's definitely relevant. It's one of the many, many possibilities and that was the first thing that I thought of so that's what I said. (laughs) Also, if you're driving in your car and you're listening to our podcast with your kids, great on you. I hope they learn some engineering things and that's why we try to keep it mostly PG.
0: Yeah, we don't even swear. I swear a lot, but I don't swear on the show.
1: Me too. I, I cursed when I spilled all the water in my lap.
0: <laughs> it's really funny because I can't see what happened. So I just hear him yelling in the background. Um, so users with no prior experience with this type of device were also able to to harness functionality after two short training sessions, which I think is important. You definitely want something that's pretty intuitive to use. So if you want to read more on the wearable armband and this study check out the links to the sources uh, on the webpage for this episode at failureology.ca this week instead of having a fake ad we have a real ad about ourselves
1: yeah so this episode is brought to you by the patreon of failureology
0: Woo-hoo. so we're planning an April Fool's special about the movie airplane yes the one from 1980
1: which is one of my favorite movies of all time
0: Yes, Brian talks about it a lot. He makes a lot of references to it that I don't get because I've never seen it.
1: Surely you can't be serious.
0: Yes, I think that's one of the lines, isn't it? It is. Yeah, see, I don't get it because I've never seen it. He's made that joke to me more than once. But I promise I will watch it before we record the episode. Uh, So obviously April Fool's episode, that's going to come out on our Patreon on April 1st. So head on over to our Patreon, support our show. It's going to be a really fun episode. And there's links to our Patreon in the show notes and on our website. And also you could Google it. Speaking of airplanes, Brian, did you see the new Netflix documentary on the 737
1: Max? I did not see that documentary yet. I've seen the previews for it. I've had a couple people mention that I should watch it, but I have not actually seen the documentary.
0: I just watched it. I thought it was really interesting. It's called Downfall, The Case Against Boeing. Um, Again, on Netflix, or at least on Canadian Netflix. I know, hopefully you get it where you are. We do want to cover the 737 MAX on a future episode. We've just gotten distracted by some of the other cool airplane failures.
1: And that's specifically the 737 MAX 8, because there's a number of other MAX series airplanes. But the MAX 8 is the one that started all of these issues.
0: Exactly. See, this is why we have Brian here. He speaks airplane. I don't. (laughs)
1: <laughs> now, on to this week's engineering failure, Kowloon Walled City in Hong Kong, China.
0: I said this before, I'm really excited to do this one. Kowloon Walled City is such a cool story. There was a huge lack of oversight during construction, to say the least, and they basically cobbled together this whole city physically and you know, operationally just over years and years of, of development. This episode isn't quite an engineering failure as on the nose as our other episodes, which is why we're covering it in episode 45, the X five episodes, the ones, you know, halfway between the marvels. So we're trying to have a little more fun with these ones that are a little more obscure. We're, we're trying to fit in these spots. Um, So this is, this is definitely one that we wanted to talk about. And you know, Kowloon is essentially what can happen when there's an absence of building regulations. Not saying we should do this everywhere. I don't think you could actually recreate Kowloon if you tried. If you put every single thing in place that happened in Kowloon, I still don't think you'd be able to recreate it. But it's such a fascinating story to read about. I This is a somewhat new story to me. So I've known about it. I probably learned about it in the last year, six months, year but it's it's not something that I was super, super familiar with. It's not something that I've known about for a long time. But as soon as I heard about it, I just immediately went and just read everything that I could find on it because I just think this is so cool. So hopefully you guys share in that and you find it just as interesting as we do.
1: The city of Kowloon was originally established as a military outpost dating back to the year 960. So a couple years before I was born.
0: That's 960, not 1960.
1: 960, not 1960, but still a few years before I was born. <laughs> a number of years. <laughs> so the city has an area of about 26,000 square meters, so about the size of four FIFA soccer pitches or sixteen and a half NHL ice surfaces. For Canadian listeners, people from America or listeners from America, I'm not sure how many washing machines per bald eagle that works out to. So you're on your own. Just. Try to imagine NFL stadiums, NFL football fields. I think those are the same size as FIFA soccer pitches, aren't they? Yeah, they're pretty close.
0: That would be my guess. I assume they're somewhere in the ballpark. So yeah, roughly four football fields.
1: Oh, we should have converted to baseball stadium. Except those are non-standard, so that's not really helpful either. Sorry, America people. China had controlled Kowloon City for for quite a while. Um, to the Qing Dynasty and the first Opium War. And then in 1894, China lost and handed over Hong Kong to Britain. So Walled City was officially turned over in 1898, around the time that Britain won the second Opium War. The one Opium War wasn't enough. And they received additional parts of Hong Kong as well. Kelvin was known as a fort at this time, and it quickly became a home for homeless people. Between British ownership of Hong Kong, Japanese occupation during World War II, as well as China occupation during World War II, the city seen many and actual claimed owners. Despite its many claims of ownership, no one seems to have really administered the city, though.
0: After World War II, 2,000 squatters occupied the city fleeing from the Chinese Civil War. The British tried to drive them out in 1948, but they were unsuccessful and adopted a, quote, hands-off policy in regards to the city. By the 1950s, the population included refugees, criminals, dropouts, peasants, anarchists, and people fleeing the law. And it became officially known as Kowloon Walled City. So, as much as, you know, the population, those those are kind of negative terms that I would see, it to me it kind of feels like, the a city of of misfits or people that you know didn't feel like they belonged um and so they all kind of gathered in Kowloon which which sounds kind of nice that everyone had a place where they belonged um it probably didn't look like that in real life but I like to think about that in my head right now July 11th 1950 a fire destroyed over 2,500 huts in the city which were home to nearly 3,500 families and 17,000 people Only the ancient core of the city remained, but the residents returned to rebuild. They are very resilient people, these Kowloon residents. And the city grew organically from there according to the residents' needs. The fire highlighted the importance of proper fire protection.
1: we've talked about the importance of fire protection a number of times on this show.
0: A number of times. If you haven't figured out by now, I'm a big fan of the National Fire Protection Association, NFPA. They got a lot of codes and standards. They do a lot of really cool stuff. One of my favorites. Also, from all of those fires that we've we've talked about, fire is something you kind of like you kind of don't think about until you have a fire. And then all of a sudden it's, oh, we should do all of these things to protect ourselves next time. And so the standards and codes that have been developed are trying to get people thinking about that and putting those those safety measures in place before the fire happens. But I would say fire and life safety is is a code that's just always evolving and always growing Um, And always finding innovative and creative solutions to make sure that that people stay safe, which which is probably why I find it so interesting. Um,
1: So at one point, Nicole, in in my building, the fire alarm system didn't work very well. It would go off all the time. Um, So when it first started, I would go all the way downstairs, all 12 floors. And then I realized, because I looked at part of the National Fire Protection Code stuff, that the stairwells, which are right across from my door... They need to provide a number of hours of, of oxygen within the stairs. So is it bad if I just kind of hung out in my unit until I smelt fire or got told to evacuate knowing that I was like right across the stairs or I just had a balcony?
0: Yes, that's bad. I am not going to support telling people to to shelter in place. That's a terrible idea. You should be exiting the building every time the fire alarm goes off, and I will not say otherwise, but I will also state that yes, the stairwells are required to be rated. In a building like yours, they're probably a two-hour rating, which means that the walls are constructed in such a way that they take they'll stay standing and are not penetrated by the fire for a minimum of two hours. There's also, I think your building's new enough that it would include a pressurization system. So basically that means they They blow fresh air into the stairwells to keep them positively pressurized in relation to adjacent spaces so that if there is smoke in the hallway, it won't transfer into the stairs so that that way people can safely exit through the building. But again, to reiterate, no, I do not support sheltering in place during a fire alarm. That is why Grenfell Tower fire was so devastating because the fire department told people to shelter in place. Brian is laughing at me a little bit right now. I am aware that I'm on a soapbox, but no, do not shelter in place.
1: In the future, I will not be doing it. But our our fire alarm system got fixed a number of years ago, so it doesn't randomly go off multiple times a day.
0: So I will say that I would rather it go off more than it should than less than it should, you know, Uh, but yeah, there's a big problem when you have these false alarms, because then exactly what you're saying happens. People don't listen to the fire alarm anymore because they don't know when it's actually an issue and when it's not. It's, that's a big problem. But anyways, back to Kowloon. So the fire, you know, it highlighted the importance of fire protection, but it also allowed the city to kind of start over construction wise. So the, the ancient core remained, but they were allowed to expand from there based on the needs of the city. There was some speculation that the fire was set intentionally, uh, but we don't really know either way.
1: Yeah. So from the 1950s until a series of more than 3,500 Hong Kong police raids in 1973 and 1974, the city was largely ruled by organized crime syndicates known as triads. And I believe that there were five major triad groups that kind of controlled things in the city. So very similar to cartels that are controlling things in, in Mexico for drug trade. It was just a different organized crime syndicate that was, that was running things in, in Kowloon City. During that time, mainly during the 1960s, the city underwent massive construction. The developers, they, they built modular packages, um, modular structures onto existing homes or onto, you know, older residences. And the city, since it was so contained in its horizontal footprint, it could only build up. So just like, you know, assembling kind of Jenga towers or, or stacking blocks, I think they're called for, for kids, building blocks, um, they would build these buildings that would go 12, 14 stories tall. We're essentially just stacked on top of each other.
0: And I want to take this opportunity to mention, so I know this is a podcast about engineering failures, and and we're we're kind of playing off the fact that the failure here is that there was no building regulations there. But one thing that I think is interesting about Kowloon, for as precarious as the construction sounds, them literally just stacking blocks on top of each other in varying arrays and, 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 um, orientations to the best of my knowledge, there was no structural collapse throughout, you know, the, at least the modern day version of Kowloon, the structure stood, which, which in in itself is, is, is very impressive. I, I was kind of surprised that there was no significant collapse and, you know, maybe, maybe there was some, Partial collapses, but they were dealt with right away because there's so much risk with everyone on top of on top of each other. But from what I could find out on my research, there were no significant collapses of of the structure, which which I think is pretty cool.
1: Yeah, so there were buildings that that leaned into each other, though. Um, you know, whether it was a structural thing or some other cause of um, the buildings leaning into each other. So they used to be called kissing towers. It was, it was these buildings that would be leaning into each other would be called.
0: Oh, good point, good point.
1: I think, too, that since these were built up so modular, it's like they probably, all the surrounding buildings, since they were so tightly clustered together, and the alleyways are a couple feet wide, you know, kind of three, four feet wide, they probably provide a lot of support to each other just by being in close proximity and leaning to each other. And then there were also um, a whole bunch of catwalks that connected buildings on the top and, you know, various, I'm going to say, structures that you know people had built between various buildings that kind of i feel like increased the interconnectivity of the buildings together just so that probably gave it some structural uh, structural rigidity as well
0: true good point
1: one of the cool things about Walled city and this is actually how i learned about Walled city is the kaitak airport so that was located right beside Walled city and it was one of the most intense airports to do an approach at in the world at one time it was ranked as the sixth most dangerous approach in the world have you heard about this approach at all nicole
0: i have in researching kowloon i i learned about the city first and then the airport but i don't think i was looking at it through the same lens that you would so yeah please tell me i'm this is interesting
1: i'll run this approach down i'll, I'll run this approach down really quickly so going into kowloon um airport or, or into Kai Tak airport if you were doing a doing an instrument approach into into Kai tac you needed to break off your instrument approach. You need to have visual conditions for the for the remainder of the approach. And the most defining factor of this whole approach was what was known as checkerboard hill. So behind one of the, the hills in Kowloon City, there was a giant red and white checkerboard that was attached to a hill. And when you made visual contacts, when you when you sighted this checkerboard, which happened about 650 feet above ground, you commenced an immediate 47 degree right turn to basically intercept a course for short final. And you kind of, you made it onto short final, so aligned with the runway at about 150 feet. So Kai tak airport was a major airport in the region. 747s were landing there, A340. So giant airplanes that transatlantic flights and across oceans and they have three or four hundred people on them so these are airplanes that are not supposed to be making or or typically don't make very steep turns very close to the ground so this phenomenon or not this phenomenon but riding in the back passengers not not a big fan of this so they would have what was known as ki-tac heart attacks going in there (laughs) your plane very close to the ground makes a very sharp right hand turn not not good for people riding in the back.
0: Yeah, that sounds uh, that sounds pretty intense. And as intense as that sounds for a passenger as a pilot, that would be that'd be tricky because you there's not a lot of wiggle room there for error.
1: There is not a lot of wiggle room, but I'm willing to bet that people who flew into Tak, once you were good at that approach, you probably really liked it and it's the most amount of hand flying that they would do for for any of these flights. A lot of the time when when you're flying the autopilot does a lot of systems management. You're doing a lot of monitoring of various things and changing things, but not a lot of like hands-on flying. But for KaiTac, for this approach, 100% need to be hand-flown, which is good.
0: I, I wonder too if, do you think there was only specific pilots that were allowed to fly into KaiTac?
1: Oh, absolutely, yeah. So you'd have to go through quite a few simulator rides and approaches into KaiTac. You would spend you know flights with a, with a training captain or somebody that was you know, certified to check you out going into Kaitech And really only the most experienced air crews would be flying into Kaitech It wouldn't be somebody that, you know, had recently started working for an airline or somebody that was much lower time. These would be very, very experienced pilots that were flying into Kaitech and only pilots that had been approved by the company operating in there. And they've undergone substantial training to fly into Kaitech
0: Yeah, this, I mean, it's a little bit different, but this reminds me of um, harbor pilots, which are are not actually plane pilots, but they board ships and navigate them through different harbors. So Tampa Bay has one, and we talked about that in the Sunshine Skyway Bridge episode because the harbor pilot drove the ship into the bridge during, during some pretty bad fog. Um, and then I believe there was also a similar setup uh, through the Panama Canal as well.
1: Yeah, Panama Canal, and, and I feel like all the canals and lock systems and the harbors, like Nicole mentioned, they all have pilots that are very experienced navigating boats of all sizes through lock systems and canals and around harbors. So instead of the, the captain of the ship navigating through there, somebody that does this daily and has had extensive training in that area and has probably worked in that area for a number of years, um, hops in and, and drives the boat, pilots the boat, captains the boat through, through those areas.
0: So before it closed, was Kai Tak the only airport in and out of Hong Kong?
1: I don't think it was the only one. It was definitely one of the major ones that existed for coming into and and coming out of Hong Kong. So unfortunately, Kai Tak Airport closed in 1998. It is worth finding a video of the approach in there. It's really, really interesting. Or if you have any sort of flight simulator, um, recreating the the Kai Tak approach. I believe it's still in there in, in some of them. Um, is a really, really neat experience.
0: Yes, and so on our webpage for this episode, we're going to put a picture of Kowloon, Walled City, and Kai just so you can see how close they are. And then we'll also include a link to a, a video to watch the Kai approach because I think that's pretty cool. Um, for those of you who haven't been to our website, for each episode we have a, a different page, and on that page you'll find pictures related to the failure. You'll find all of our sources for the engineering news and the failure itself, and. You'll also find our episode summary with all of our show notes for that failure. So we we talked about doing transcripts and we did try to do transcripts for a few episodes, but they're they're just very labor intensive. And so we thought a good compromise would be to share our show notes that we're, we're developing anyways, as we're doing research. Do you want to, if you want to see our notes, go check out our website, failureology.ca.
1: So the show notes have all the the information about the episode, none of the tangents, because we make most of that up on the fly, as you can tell, <laughs> um, but it's got all the important information on there. Yes. And it takes way less time to do than transcribing entire episodes.
0: Yes. So of course, we want you to come and listen to our show and hear all of our fun train tangents and airplane tangents. But if you're short for time, or you want a keyword search, or you're driving, maybe you're driving right now. And we said something that was interesting, and you don't know where in the episode it is, you can always go to our website and keyword search and find that bit of information. Um, and then also, you know, we try to put as much information in these episodes as we can. But some of these are just there's just way too much information so we focus on the things we think are interesting but if you go to our sources you can usually find other things that maybe you find interesting that we just didn't have have space to include so so you can definitely go check out the sources if you want to read more on a specific topic.
1: Speaking of interesting we should get back to talking about Kowloon Wild City. Yes we should. There were eight municipal pipes that provided water to the entire city although they could get more water from wells Eight pipes to me sounds like not very many pipes to provide for the density of the city and for the amount of people that are living in this city.
0: Well, we don't... I'm just going to say, we don't really know because we don't know what size those pipes were or how they were how they were distributed. Eight doesn't sound too, too crazy depending on the level of fire protection. So uh, usually... Um, high rise tower probably has, they usually have dual service, but that's for redundancy, but you can feed a whole high rise with like a six inch or an eight inch pipe, depending on how many units. So eight separate pipes, if they were a decent size, isn't, isn't impossible, but who knows what the distribution looks like, especially with them adding on to each other one at a time. It's very possible that the pipes, you know, at the bottom were too small to really properly feed the pipes at the top.
1: I'm guessing, just based off the pictures, the distribution network looked like spaghetti.
0: <laughs> that's true, yeah. There was definitely a chaotic network of, of pipes and wires throughout Kowloon.
1: And TV antennas and walkways and alleyways and staircases. There's a lot of chaos that's happening in this city. So the upper levels of, of Kowloon City, um, they did have a network of, of stairs and passageways, like Nicole mentioned, and you could actually travel from the south part of the city to the north part of the city without touching the ground. I, I assume you can also travel from the north part of the city to the south part of the city without touching the ground. So you could get around the entire city, basically on the roofs and walking along catwalks, and you wouldn't even have to go down to the street level, which is actually probably ideal in this case because the alleyways and the streets were so narrow that a lot of the time that light didn't get down all the way to the street level.
0: Brian, have you ever played the lava game?
1: I have played the lava game. In fact, I played the Lava Game three weeks ago.
0: Ooh, fun. So that's what this reminds me of. Not the same at all, but it kind of reminds me of the Lava Game, which for those of you, if you've never played it, it seems pretty popular in Canada, though, because I know a lot of people that have played it as a kid, uh, you essentially have to use blankets and pillows and such and you have to find pathways across your living room or your house without touching the actual flooring because the floor is made of lava. You- which is lava. Yeah. So that's kind of what this reminds me of. It's not the same, but that's what, I, that's what I'm thinking in my head, which is kind of fun.
1: <laughs> one of the other interesting things when I was reading about Wall City, for all of the people and the density that exists in the city, there was one person that delivered all of the mail to all the residents and businesses in Kowloon City. There were only two elevators in the entire city. So this person is walking up and down a lot of stairs because there's 10,700 households, 33,000 residents, 8,500 premises. So that's a lot of walking in a day. And it's possibly dark if he's got to go down to ground level.
0: I'm assuming, not that this is not a challenge, but I'm assuming that this post person this is their only route and I'm also assuming that it's the same person every time so that person probably knows the city really well but fun thought what if that person takes a vacation and someone has to fill in and they're like oh my god how do they do this that would be a fun experience for them
1: (laughs) I think mail probably just didn't get delivered if this person went on vacation
0: well I wonder too the process for delivery. Because I don't think they're going to each individual person. There's probably main drop points that they have to bring the mail to. And then the residents kind of distribute it from there. Would be my guess. I don't, I don't really know. Though. Yeah.
1: I'm not sure how, how that would work. Um, I don't even know how the addressing would work in a place like Kowloon City. Since there was no overseeing committee or planning commission. I assume that there was no legal way to subdivide premises. So it would be very chaotic numbering system. And, and this is back in um, at a time where where things like Google Maps didn't exist. So you'd have to know the entire city, I think, just in your memory or by landmark, know where things are, which is which is really daunting.
0: Yeah, for sure. So among the businesses that took place within Calhoun City were unlicensed doctors or dentists, because they could operate without prosecution. And there were also several small factories. Everything from fish balls to golf balls were produced within Kowloon. In 1962, Britain said they would demolish the city in one year. But then China said they couldn't interfere. So what had happened was Britain and China were arguing over Hong Kong, which, as you know, kind of went on for for a while. It went back and forth and, and Kowloon kind of got tossed around with it. And so... One of the bargaining chips, Britain had written down on a piece of paper that Kowloon could belong to China. But they didn't really take it seriously. They thought, yeah, yeah, whatever. Sure, you can have it. But they never really intended to give it to them. But then when, you know, when push came to shove, China said, no, no, you put it in writing. You said we could have Kowloon. We're taking Kowloon. It's ours.
1: I feel like this is not the first time that this has happened to the British.
0: (laughs) Probably not. So when that happened, Britain said, fine, it's yours. At that point, it was under the ownership of China, but they didn't want to administer it. So it kind of became a diplomatic no man's land and no one could really enforce laws within Kowloon Walled City, which is also really cool. And we're going to get into this later, but a little bit more about how how it was administered, because it wasn't done by any municipality or government. But there was still some rules and oversight. But we'll get into that a little bit later. So. As you can imagine, the city was really, really cramped as more and more people were arriving. More and more refugees from China and Hong Kong citizens moved to Kowloon during the 1973 stock market crash. Even though no one oversaw the rules within it, Britain did prevent it from growing out horizontally, as Brian had mentioned. So they couldn't get, their footprint couldn't get any larger, but they could go up. So as the rest of Hong Kong grew taller, so did Kowloon. By the 1980s, it was 14 stories tall. The average block was about 30 square meters apartments balanced precariously on top of one another. But there was some 10 square meter apartments mixed in there as well, which is smaller than a one bedroom in North America. And three or four generations of people would live in these apartments, including the family business. So as you can imagine, Kowloon City is very, very densely populated. There's a lot of people and not a lot of space. As much as that sounds Challenging to me as a fairly introverted person who likes my space, it it seems like this worked for everybody in Kowloon. You know, they found a way to make this work. And and this was really a functioning society in and of itself, which I think, again, is really, really
1: cool. So no labor laws were enforced within Kowloon Walled City, which led it to be a mecca for those that operated, let's say, under the law or without a license. So there were a lot of slaughterhouses heroin dispensaries, other places of ill repute. And at one time, 80% of all the rice balls consumed in Hong Kong and the surrounding territory, they were prepared in Kowloon, Walled City. Kowloon was fairly famous for its snacks.
0: The noodles were said to be so good that Hong Kong residents would often go to Kowloon to to eat them.
1: That's saying a lot lot about how good the noodles are.
0: Yeah, I mean, I really like noodles, so I kind of get it.
1: I'm kind of jealous that Kowloon doesn't exist anymore because I also really like noodles.
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) I don't think it would be worth an entire trip across the world to go eat noodles in Kowloon.
0: But maybe if you were already in Hong Kong.
1: Oh, if I was in Hong Kong and Kowloon existed, I would be going for noodles. So within Kowloon, there was some enforcement of, of order. Just the enforcement, it wasn't done by police forces or government agencies. It was done by triad groups and despite being involved in illegal activities, the triad groups, they also did some other fairly positive things. They organized waste collection, they recruited volunteer fire departments, they kept order in cramped alleys, they paid senior resident pensions, so even an old folks home was run by a triad group in one of the blocks, so little bit of good things, little bit of not so great things. The most common illegal activity that happened in Kowloon City was the opium trade. There were opium dens everywhere, and there was easy access to heroin, which caused rampant addiction issues within Kowloon City. But there was a functioning society here. They did have kindergartens. They had schools. They had libraries. They had temples. They had doctor's offices. They had dentist's office. So all the things that we think about for a normal society, those all existed within Kowloon-walled city. And this all grew without any sort of central planning, which I think is really neat. So yeah, all of this has just developed organically as, as people see fit.
0: In the 1980s, a resident tried to map the city and it took him six years to do so. I haven't really had any luck tracking down how he did it or what that map looked like. I'm definitely going to keep searching. That'd be a really interesting project. Very challenging and time consuming. I don't even think the elevations of each block kind of match the ones next to it necessarily. I think everything's kind of mismatched. So I don't really know how you'd even map that, but but definitely an interesting project. So speaking of density, so just as a comparison for population density, so New York City has a density of 27,000 people per square kilometer, and Kowloon had the equivalent of 1.2 million people per square kilometer. So it's multitudes more dense than New York City. And New York City is a pretty densely populated area. So... That's just kind of what what you're looking at here as far as how many people were inside the city. That said, I do want to say, you know, Kowloon is much, much smaller than new York. it's it didn't the footprint was not very large. It didn't have one point two billion people in it. It had somewhere close to about fifty thousand at the time of of demolition.
1: but it still had a lot of people in a very tiny area. Like when you have four or five generations living in what's essentially a North American bedroom, that's a lot of people in a small area.
0: yes, definitely. So in the 1980s, the Hong Kong police started attempting to to police inside Kowloon, but at that time, they were really only able to keep people safe and they couldn't really enforce any of the laws, which, I mean, at that point, I think that's all you can really hope for. You know, lawlessness seemed to be working for everyone. So I say leave and be. In 1986, the colonial governor of Hong Kong was aware that Britain's time in Hong Kong was coming to an end in 1997. And at 6 a.m. on January 14th, 1987, the residents of Kowloon learned of the plans to demolish the city. The housing department staff and police sealed off all 83 exits and registered as many people as they could inside the city. So it was about 20,000 at first, and they later revised it to almost 30,000 people across 8,800 buildings. That said, the actual estimated population was about 50,000 people. So they're still missing quite a few in that registration process. Um, So China, you know, historically would back up the city against Britain, but not this time. They didn't really want to deal with the city themselves. They didn't want to take over and administer the city or be responsible should something happen. And as cool as I think Kowloon is, I kind of don't blame them. It does seem like a bit of a challenge, and so, I, I mean, I can't really blame them for not wanting to take, take on that responsibility. In an effort to get residents out, new homes and compensation packages were offered to residents and businesses. And by January 1991, 96% of the residents and 51% of businesses had agreed to leave Kowloon. By June 1992, the British tried to remove the last of the residents, and they were successful on July 1st, 1992, at 4.30 a.m. when the last family agreed to leave Kowloon. Demolition of the city began in March 1993 and lasted until April 1994, so a little bit over a year. I think a lot of that stems from the fact that there's populated areas around Kowloon, so they couldn't just demolish it. I think they had to be fairly systematic in how they they took it apart, which I'm guessing is why it took them a little over a year. I'm kind of sad that it's demolished. I would have liked to check it out. It sounds like a really cool place. I'm sure they weren't offering tours, but if they were, I would definitely have signed up. I think it'd be really cool to just see what it's like inside. I mean, I've looked at lots of pictures, but I just don't think they do it justice. Um, And it'd be really cool to experience Kowloon in person.
1: Yeah, I I think for a place like Kowloon, it's a place you have to experience, right? You can think you know what it would be like just looking at pictures, but I, I feel that there would be a lot of rancid smells and interesting people and characters, and it would be very dark. Yeah, it would be definitely a place that you'd want to experience, maybe only once. But uh, yeah, I think it would be really interesting to experience that.
0: Mm -hmm. And after it was demolished, the area where Kowloon was is now a public park. I personally think that was a really, really good choice for them. You know, Kowloon was such a it made such an imprint on the city of Hong Kong, you know, impacted a lot of people. It was there for a long time. You know, this city developed over hundreds of years. And so I think it could have been really easy for them to tear it down and put another uh, development in its place. But I think that by putting a park there, it allows the people that, you know, what that Kowloon meant a lot to, to be able to go back and kind of reflect on on what used to be there and their time there. And I'm imagining, you know, people going to the park where Kowloon used to be and telling stories about oh, one time I went there for noodles and I saw this or I saw that or, (laughs) oh, this person used to live there and I haven't seen them in a while. I wonder how they're doing and that kind of stuff. So I I think, you know, I think replacing these types of projects or structures or developments with public spaces is really, really important so that everyone can still kind of enjoy that and reflect on on what it used to be.
1: Yeah. And green spaces in very built up urban areas, I think those are really, really important for people's physical health and their mental health and just as a place to go that's not all all concrete i know like when i've traveled to major cities um, like new york with central park that's one of the in my opinion one of the best features of new york i really like a lot of other things in new york but i also really really like central park and uh, every time i go to new york i'll probably spend about a day just walking through central park
0: The crazy part about Central Park is you look at the map and you think you know how big Central Park is. And then you go there and you realize it is 10 times at least bigger than you think. It's huge. We walked for a whole day and we only made it halfway across the park before we had to turn around. It's a large park. I didn't realize it was so big.
1: Yeah, that that was the impression I got the first time I went there. I figured it would be a large park, but I didn't realize how large it was. Which is why I spend a day every time I go to New York basically just walking through Central Park. There's always things going on like there's ice skating if you go in the winter. Or there's stuff to look at on the ponds. and There's people playing soccer and there's dogs. And I, there's just so many things that are happening. I, I can't remember exactly how big it is, but I think it's 40 city blocks. Like it's, it's a fairly massive, well it is a massive park in the middle of New York. Mm, yeah. So there you have it. Kowloon Walled City. The city of no laws, despite some semblance of order. The city is an example of what could happen when there are no building code regulations. That said, there is no collapse or major failure of the structures that we know of, which in itself is quite surprising.
0: For photos, sources, and an episode summary from this week's episode, head to failureology.ca. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please rate, review, and subscribe to Failureology so more people can find us. If you want to chat with us, our Twitter handle is at Failureology. You can email us at FailureologyPodcast at gmail.com. You can connect with us on LinkedIn, or you can message us on our Patreon page. Check out the show notes for links to all of these. Thanks everyone for listening, and tune into the next episode where we'll talk about the second Narrows Bridge in Vancouver. Just because some supports are temporary doesn't mean they don't need to be properly designed. Bye everyone. Talk soon.